0: mom's away the kids will play welcome to light the fight podcast minus my partner in crime heidi swap she's the mom and i think a lot of times i feel like i'm the kid so now that she's gone i'm like what can i talk about that she will not allow me to talk about (laughs) how can i disrupt the flow of our podcast so if you're considering leaving our podcast and never listening again this might be your reason and your best opportunity But who knows? Maybe it might be mildly entertaining. My name is David Kozlowski. If you're new to Light the Fight, I work as a therapist, and that's during the day, and at night I do podcasting with Heidi Swap and a few other things, uh, and I have a lot of fun doing it. So since Heidi's gone, um, Heidi asked me, she's like, hey, so what are you going to talk about while I'm gone, Dave? I said, well, I'm going to tell all your deepest, darkest secrets, but then I realized Heidi doesn't have a filter. She's already told you half the secrets. And the only reason why she hasn't told you the rest of them because she has not remembered them. But when she does remember her secrets, because of her lack of a filter, she will share those things with you. So since she's not here to share stuff, I thought that maybe I might share a little bit about, uh, about me. Uh, a little bit about uh, how I got to this point of where all this crazy information that uh, I've been talking to you guys about. And a little bit about my background and what's inside my head. And why um, I suggest the things I suggest might be a little bit clearer for you to understand once you to know a little bit about my past and where I come from. So uh, before I do that, though, I have a very, very happy and exciting announcement to make. Um, we don't have the the date yet for when we will be starting the teen podcast, but it's very soon. But we do have a name. And how I came about this name is some of you may have heard me talk about, uh, a company by the name of Quit Trippin. If you have not heard me talk about this, basically it's a 501c3 that I started a number of years ago. And so the the story behind it is um, I was putting on these uh, teen support groups in a local community center here. And teens were coming, they're loving the groups, they're connecting, having deep conversations. And it's kind of like a hybrid of therapy. It's We call it you know social support groups where it's not therapy per se. Um, it's not listed in our mental health. It's just um, a place where they can come, talk, hang out with other kids that have also had different life experiences. They, One part learn from each other and uh, another part support one another, but ultimately the connections that they build from the group just helps them get through difficult times. And so a long time ago, we just started doing this and then, you know, we decided to turn into a nonprofit and I asked the kids what they wanted to call the name of the group, and the name of the group turned into Quit Trippin'. Quit Trippin' was a, a name that I was already working with on another project and a name that I had in the back of my head for a long time. Some of the kids really liked the name. They felt that when they're talking to their friends and having deep conversations, um, whether it be like, you know, at someone's house late at night or someone's struggling with a breakup or some sort of family problems. After talking to close friends and people who they trusted, all the stuff that they're tripping out on, you know, stressing out, struggling with, they just kind of quit tripping. Meaning after you're connecting with a close friend or someone that you know cares and understands and relates to you, all the stress and struggles you have, they may not completely go away, but they sure do feel a lot less burdensome and you feel like someone gets you And because of that, you're able to keep on going for a little bit longer. So the kids really like that name. Like, yeah, these groups are just kind of like that when we come hang out and we all talk about our lives and what we got going on. And after we talk about all these things, all the stuff that we were tripping out on before we came to group, we just kind of quit tripping. So the reason why I bring that up is I went to these teen support group or this teen support group and I asked the teenagers there. You know, first of all, I told them about the podcast and they're super pumped and excited and they all want to be on the podcast. They're looking forward to the opportunity to talk about their lives um, so that other young people can hear about it. Because I think they all realize that if they knew, if like, if they were just a regular teenager, never coming to our sport groups, never hearing those conversations, and they turned on a podcast and listen to teenagers talking the way that they talk on a weekly basis they all agreed that they would love that. Like that would open up their minds and their eyes to a whole lot of things they haven't seen before. So I went to them, I said, Hey, I'm doing this teen podcast and you know, obviously, like I said, a lot of them want to be a part of it. And I asked them if, if they would come up with the name. And so we came up with a number of names, um, narrowed it down to like the top four or five. We, we did a poll on our, on our quit trip and uh, Facebook page and they all weighed in and it was pretty much unanimous um what they wanted the name to be and it was a little surprising what they chose the name but i thought it was hilarious and they all like it so the teenager spoke um quit tripping the sport groups have worked because they picked the name so i'm hoping we'll have the same success um with the podcast because they picked the name of the podcast so the name of the podcast is still (laughs) tripping hopefully you get the joke in that um so, basically, one of the teenagers a long time ago had had mentioned that they're like, man, my 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 parents could use a support group like this, like you should do it for parents and a lot of parents said, Man, you should put on these support groups for parents to hang out and talk with each other and one of the teenagers said he goes, Yeah, um, for the parents, I don't want you to call it quit tripping because that's our name, but you could call it still tripping and all the kids bust up laughing well, that was years ago, and for some reason. The name had just kind of been a joke. We floated around like, hey, yeah, Still tripping like for parents. And then, uh, you know, one of the kids thought it'd be a great name for the podcast. And next thing you know, they all voted on it and it was unanimous. So the name of our teen podcast will be called Still Tripping, And it's quite fitting because even though they're working on to stop or quit tripping, the reality of it is they're still tripping on a lot of stuff in their life. So I'm looking forward and excited to that. Um, can't give a definite timeline we'll, when we'll have that out, but I'm hoping in the next three weeks. Um, and... Also, uh, if everything works according to plan, Heidi and I will be announcing on social media this next week um, the time and date and location for our parent workshop that we'll be putting on in August. And if you have not heard about our parent workshop that we mentioned a couple episodes ago, it's basically where Heidi and I are going to be putting on um, a workshop for parents to help you dig a little bit deeper into where we're coming from, give you some Um, practical tools, how to optimize your influence over not just your teens, but just all of your family members, but specifically your children. So we'll be announcing that really soon. Super excited about that. I know Heidi is super pumped about that. She's out of town, out of the country right now, but um, we've had a lot of deep conversations about that. And we're really looking forward to what this could offer on more of an intimate personal one-on-one level to answer a lot of your questions but also to give you a day where you're getting to see the evolution of all the things we talk about all at one time versus in just you know episodes throughout um, the, the month and you know once or twice a week So look got a lot of great things uh, in the future for light the fight so we're excited about that and we will be um, uh, having a new website so if you visit our website in the past, um, thank you for your patience and still listening to our podcast because our website is it was it was like a placeholder. you know it's just more like a a place to go visit for a second. and so hopefully uh, it's gonna be a lot more user friendly and it's just gonna be uh, an updated version so you can get all the newest content and information on Light the fight and we'll have a lot of stuff uh, coming from the website in the very near future. some things that Heidi asked me not to share because she likes to give surprises so Without further ado, I'm going to talk to you about how boring my life has been and how I decided to become a therapist just because I just want to help people, and that's it. All right, and the story, Life the Fight's Over, I wish it was that simple. If my life was like that, I definitely wouldn't be here doing this podcast. I, I would have had to read a book about what it was like to have life struggles, and all joking aside, I think most people... Are, have gone through unique circumstances in their life that um, kind of shape and cultivate their life. I remember when I was in graduate school in psychology, um, gosh, I, I can't even remember the, the famous psychologist, apparently wasn't so famous for me to remember. I think it might have been Adler that uh, he came up with this, this idea that certain people, um, their early childhood experiences really shape uh, their career path. Uh, for example, he gave some, um, I'm pretty sure it's Adler. He he gave different uh, research and stuff that he'd done with uh, doctors and certain doctors. Now, granted, not all doctors, may, maybe some doctors just want to be a doctor to make money. But um, he talked about how certain doctors had shared, you know, um, a traumatic experience of like the death of a parent when they're younger. And so that loss of a parent and watching someone die by cancer or whatever it may be, you know come to find out they they became a doctor and maybe specialized in some of the things that they were witnessing and struggles that they'd grown up with throughout their life. And in my situation, I I think that's absolutely what, what created my path, what got me to where I'm at. Um, but along the way, there's there's different twists and turns. And so I, I think I'll start out with just talking about something that I've alluded to. And I've talked to a, a number of times about Um, how I was raised or, you know, um, what type of family I came from. And so I I don't want to say my situation is entirely unique because a lot of people have have been adopted. Um, But what I do want to say is a little bit more information about how I came about to being adopted, um, how these things transpired. And who knows, maybe some of you listening to this will will be able to relate to this. Um, Maybe some of you will... Just kind of think it's moderately entertaining <laughs> or funny at, at least. So the my background starts like this. So my, my biological grandmother, um, she had a baby out of wedlock um, in the 50s, early 50s. And she is from um, Laie, Hawaii, which is on around the North Shore of Oahu. And she was raised in, uh, if you've ever been to Hawaii, there's different parts of Hawaii that have different kind of vibes and feelings. Well, the Honolulu, the town part of Hawaii is completely different from the North shore part of Hawaii. In fact, they call it town and country. And my mom's definitely from the country. And when I say my mom, let let me clarify, my grandmother, I refer to her as my mom. So she was raised in the '50s, and you know she, she had a baby out of wedlock. And as you can only imagine, in the '50s, you know a baby out of wedlock was not the most exciting thing you want to brag about. And specifically because she came from a, a very religious town, um, it's you know where they had the first Hawaiian temple, um, a Mormon temple in that town. So it was you know extraordinarily conservative, very tribal in the sense that Polynesians are very protective of their own, and so. She went through a lot of struggles with having a baby out of wedlock, and for different various reasons, um, that guy was not a part of her raising the baby, and she wanted nothing to do with him. So, in comes this innocent Caucasian man by the name of Michael Kozlowski, that was stationed at Schofield Barracks on the North Shore, and you know he's in the military, and like a lot of guys that go to the islands, they they'll go to a luau, they'll go to a an event, and they'll see some beautiful, dark skin, dark haired girl dancing the hula and their eyes get a little mesmerized by the hips. And uh, I think the saying is you're supposed to focus on the hands, but obviously in my dad's case, it was a little bit difficult for him to focus on the hands because the hips taken his attention. And um, it, it's truly a testament to my, to, to my, to my dad. And I'll get into it because obviously he's my adopted grandfather. So he's of no biological relationship to me. It's a testament to him that he was able at that time in the 50s to go to Hawaii and be allowed to date a local girl and marry a local girl and still be alive. The the local guys there, the Polynesian families, were extraordinarily protective of the local girls, and I think to the most part they still are, but it's a lot more mixed now than it used to be. And so he was a haole boy, and that means he's a white boy, but he ate all their food he kept his mouth shut <laughs> he never said a word and i think over time they just kind of oh that white boy's still here like they just kind of got used to him being around and so one thing leads to another um you know he, he decided to uh to marry um uh, my grandmother and her and and adopt her uh her child which is yasmin and so they started life together and and together they had you know five different children eventually they they moved from the North shore of Oahu, um, which I still mad at them to this day that they did that because I would have liked to have been raised with better surf. But, and they moved to San Diego and uh, specifically Cardiff, California, Encinitas, California. And uh, they, they, they made a life in, in California, but it wasn't an easy life. You know, you got six kids and you're raising a family in the fifties and the sixties and California back then was a lot more affordable, but you know, there, there was a lot of pain from uh, my grandmother's side of the family. She was the youngest, of, I believe, of 12 kids. And um, my grandmother, um, a.k.a. my mother, she uh, she had endured quite a, a bit of physical abuse, which was pretty much customary in um, Polynesian households back in those days, but also uh, sexual abuse. And at the time, I didn't know this growing up, but this was later... Um, i found about this later on in life but one thing i i realized when i was a young kid is that my grandmother aka my mom uh she, she loved me and she took good care of me but she struggled immensely with emotional mental and psychological problems but she was a hard worker big heart and she loved to cook and she loved family but she had a lot of demons, and uh, those demons would come out in a lot of physical aggression, and so I, I was raised in a household that was not a stranger to a lot of violence. Well, how it came about, where um, I was raised by my grandmother, I, I won't get into too much of the details of that, and out of respect to my biological mother, but you know, it it was just it was better for my grandmother to raise me because my biological mom, she was pretty young still; um, she was 20 years old when she had me, and. You know, she she didn't have a a man to help her out with um, the birth, and you know at that time she wasn't completely one hundred percent sure who the father was, and you know there's two potential options of guys, and you know back then she didn't do a DNA test or anything like that. So my grandmother raised me while my biological mom went out to life and just tried to figure herself out and find herself, and she too endured a lot of um, physical and uh, emotional and sexual abuse, which led to a lot of other struggles. So here I am a a young boy um, being raised by my grandmother and her five of her kids that were still living at home. And I was raised as the youngest of the family. And uh, the closest sibling to me was um, 10 years older than me. And, you know, obviously these weren't biological siblings. They were, you know, half uncles and aunts. And I remember growing up um, just really admiring and looking up to a lot of them. Uh, two of my brothers, um, my adopted brothers, were uh, fortunate enough to be successful in football and play in the NFL. Uh, one had a long career with the Miami Dolphins. Another one had a long career with the Chicago Bears. So growing up, it was kind of expecting in my family that um, you were going to do good in athletics. And I, I did good enough where I was able to, you know, get a football scholarship out here to the University of Utah. But, you know, I, I had the secret. And the secret was that I was a child not out of wedlock, not just out of wedlock, which was part of the secret. But I was a child that, um, you know, I didn't I didn't really think about it too much when I was growing up because I don't think I wanted to think about it. But I felt I was a child that my mother didn't want me, and my mother abandoned me, and it it kind of it kind of left me with that. Well, what's wrong with me? And so inside, I you know, I, I focused on sports and activities that kind of came natural to me to. Be like my identity to to help me have something because, you know, when you're young, you want to get some attention any way you can get it, and I just happened to be good enough at sports, and my family was known for it, so those were the things I gravitated towards. But as we mentioned our last podcast, you know, my real love was the ocean and was surfing. But they didn't have surfing scholarships growing up, and I wasn't good at that thing where you open up books and read them and then take tests like. School. Yeah, that's what it's called. I wasn't really that great at school. So I figured out if I'm going to have a chance to get to the next level in college, it's, it's definitely going to be through athletics. So fortunately enough, I, I had that opportunity. And, you know, my my high school, my childhood, um, there's a lot of struggles that were going on inside of my home. But I was really fortunate, blessed to have a lot of good people in my life growing up. I, I had a lot of great friends and, and their families. And, um a lot of great families in the community a lot of polynesian families um i'll name a couple you know like the molifua family my uncle george molifua and my auntie sue um just i felt love like no one ever made me feel like i was a bastard child no one ever treated me different um i was adopted into the family and people were proud of me they they, they liked me and, and i had lots of friends and to this day i'm really close to a lot of my high school friends but, you know, like any secret, you know, at some point in life, it's going to rear its ugly head. And that all transpired when I left home and I came to the University of Utah on a football scholarship. And after being away from, I was going to say the structure, but I'd probably be probably best described as the control of my parents. Um, don't know how much structure was there, but uh, I came to the University of Utah. I was on my own and my freshman year here, uh, I almost got kicked out of school. I... The whole independent living thing. Um, come to find out that because of my my grandmother's temper and her anger and her and, you know her emotional and psychological distress, you know she felt really bad for the way she treated me at times, and so she'd make up for it by doing everything for me, so I didn't have to do anything. That was her language of love. So I, I had an interesting combination of um, a, a, you know a significant amount of emotional and physical abuse happening in my household i'm not i'm not going to say i got it the worst because my oldest siblings would say you didn't get anything compared to what we got but the reality was it's a shared experience <laughs> uh, i was the only one at home for them to pay attention to and they had at least each other to you know one would cause a diversion while the other one snuck out to hang out with their friends so um I would like to say it was harder for me, but I think it was just different for both of us. So when I went to college, um, I really didn't know how to take care of myself. I'd never done my own laundry. I'd never cooked for myself. I hadn't done some of these basic things because, you know, I, I had a very guilt-stricken and uh and grandmother that felt bad for a lot of, you know, her life choices and, and the way she handled things. So I get to college first year. Um, oh, yeah. And bad study habits to, to match with that. I had a great amount of success my freshman year in college, which was the worst thing for my 18 year old male ego to be starting on the football team at 18 years old when I really didn't deserve it. It just was one of those things where I, I got to start. I mean, I didn't really put in my time yet. And uh, it, it transpired to an inflated ego, uh, to a little bit of cockiness. People that knew me back then would probably argue that point and maybe err on the side of a lot of cockiness. And I, you know, I was all in on the con. I, I wanted people to think I was this great guy and I wanted everybody to like me and I wanted to be popular. I wanted to play in the NFL, but I had not even scratched the surface of my history and I'd never even begin to deal with my life and and, and think about the things I'd been through. And so some interesting events happened when I started playing football at the University of Utah. Um, So my whole entire life, starting when I was about three years old, um, I fell out of a a van. It wasn't a moving van, but if you guys remember back in the days, uh, they used to have these big traveling vans that there'd be like chessboards and checkerboards and swivel chairs in them. Our family uh, had one of those vans and um, uh, just a random experience. I was waiting for my mom to get out of the grocery store and we pulled up, she ran in to get some stuff and I was going to open up the door and be a good little gentleman at three years old. Well, She'd taken a long time, like she normally did, and I fell asleep on the door. But I cracked it open. Well, she opened up the door without me knowing. I fell out backwards, and I cracked my skull on the curb. And uh, it was—I didn't know that that one event was gonna have so many long-lasting effects in my life. But after that event, um, like you know, a crazy little boy, I banged my head a lot. But for some reason, when I banged my head, I seemed to get a concussion every time I hit my head. I remember one time BMX riding, I jumped off a curb that's obviously someone put together the bike very badly and the handlebars came off the bike when I jumped off, uh, it was a curb or a jump, something like that. And I remember ending up face planning, boom, right into the concrete and coming into consciousness a couple hours later with a huge knot on my head. I remember running on a, a stage, um, uh, like at a school and uh, like, you know, a performing stage and in my socks were all playing tag and I slipped off that face first, boom, right on the, right on the gym floor, knocked myself out again. And so BMX again, hit in the head with my surfboard, getting knocked out um, concussions and then playing pop Warner football, a lot of head bangs. It started to get to a point where when I became in high school, I remember my sophomore in high school I had a concussion in a game. And I remember I was not really completely unconscious but after that i started to develop an interesting speech impediment where i would go to say something and my speech would lock up on me and i knew what i wanted to say but for some reason it would get stuck in my mouth and i couldn't talk i'd like go mute so i wouldn't stutter just go mute junior had another concussion senior had a really bad one where actually yeah it it was it was someone's best hit of their football career let's put it that way broke my face mask, snapped my head back. I don't remember playing in the game. They finally had to take my helmet away from me. And if you've ever seen like a professional football player, some people have got some bad head traumas. Um, they take their helmets away from them. Well, in football, they take your helmet away from you if you can't pass the, if you don't know who you are, where you're at, because you get really emotional and guys will go out of habit into the game, even though they're. it's called being out on your feet. And back then they called it a grade three concussion and that's what had happened to me. And I remember I was really devastated because my brother, Mike, came in town. And my older brothers had never seen me play football. And all I wanted to do was to get their attention. But they just didn't have any time in their life for me. Um, and so he came in town to watch me play. And in the first quarter of the game, wow, got knocked out cold, came to a little bit. Long story short, they took my helmet, and I got really, really emotional And what had happened was and this is a common thing with football players now is that when you have a concussion it it makes you very emotionally unstable i mean i was crying on the sidelines and if any of you guys watch football it's not usually a common thing to see guys cry on the sidelines but recently um uh, a linebacker um luke uh yeah keegley keegley um he got a concussion and he'd had multiple concussions and he started coming and glued crying and screaming on the sidelines that's what was happening in my situation so after that concussion my speech impediment got so bad where my speech would lock up for minutes at a time the whole entire time i'm like man if i tell someone this i'm i'm out because they wouldn't even let me play after that for a game so i'd learned to keep these things a secret and i was good at keeping secrets so went to college and sure enough uh, my freshman year um, right before our first game in practice it was pretty brutal back then in practice. a lot of guys on the defense didn't like me. Let's put it that way. Uh, apparently, they didn't like my cockiness, and one guy in a practice just teed off on me. Just whop, Just hit me hard, and we weren't even full pads, and he just knocked me out. And I came to, but I didn't. I couldn't stand up on my own two feet, so they made me sit out for a while because they knew I had a concussion. So I remember saying, "I can't tell them I have a concussion, or I'm going to sit out." Problem is, I kept on having concussions finally to the point where I was snowboarding one year. And in that same year, I'd had two, two, three concussions. Uh, I'd lacerated a hole in my liver, which was an in-game injury and I almost died. And when I say almost died, like I almost died of internal bleeding. Like I was, I was in the hospital for a long time. It was, it was a very, very serious, more like a high-speed car collision type of an injury where my, my liver imploded and popped a, about a six inch by two inch hole in it. And, uh, I finally went, you know, snowboarding and, you know, against doctor's orders and being stupid. And I hit my head on the ice and next thing you know, I was in a, in a, a, a short coma, um, at the hospital. And one thing led to another, I, I started to break down. I got emotional. I was struggling with depression and I started to share, um, that, you know, I was, I started to talk about my struggles a little bit to a couple of close friends. Well, it all kind of came to a head when i was having some relationship issues with at that time a fiance my fiance everything it was just that bad combination of life my head traumas i started to abuse alcohol and drugs and one thing led to another and uh, i had a knee surgery because i blew out my acl so as you can see i was just a hot mess my body i made a glass i picked the wrong sport i should have been doing like figure swimming or something like that <laughs> i i did i should have been doing something that was non-contact for sure And I blew up my ACL and I went to have the surgery and because of my parting lifestyle um, and because of the concussions and the anesthesia, something had happened. And I had a really bad panic attack after the the surgery because there were some complications. I was throwing up and stuff. And and I took all the pain pills that I had from the last couple surgeries and that surgery. And I definitely took enough pain pills to probably kill a full-size horse. Fortunately... My next door neighbor in the apartment had heard me collapse. I had heard something, and we weren't even really friends. But for some reason, next thing I know, I'm losing consciousness, and uh, the door gets kicked in, and it's the fire department and EMTs. And I had lived less than a mile away from the University of Utah Hospital, so quite you know fortunate for me went there, they got the treatment that I needed, was able to, uh, get the bad stuff out of my stomach. And, um, and I was there for about five days with out any sleep. And you know, obviously, you know, it does a lot to your liver and, you know, it's, it's a pretty painful experience. And I remember a, a doctor walked in, a bunch of doctors were trying to figure out like what was really happening with me. And I didn't tell them, you know, that it was an intentional, you know, suicide attempt. And, you know, I a lot of things were going on at that time that I was embarrassed and ashamed of. Well, the turning point for me, which really I, I believe was a starting point of why I'm even sitting here right now, was my coach at the time, my head football coach was a gentleman of the name of Ron McBride. And for those people in Utah you might have heard of him, um, he he's not an average man. He's he's a unique person. In fact, he actually created so for those people who aren't college football fans, University of Utah, before I had gotten there, um, a couple years before I got in there, they were just a below average team. Um, and they hired this, this guy, Ron McBride. Well, I love you, Coach McBride, but might not have been the brightest bulb in the tree when it comes to football, but his passion, his conviction, and his ability to connect with people in relationships made him who he was. And so he made you believe that he was in it with you, and it's because he was. He just had a great heart. Not a not a perfect man. He had a lot of his own flaws, but you believe that he loved you. And so I was already done basically with my football career. I mean, injury after injury, concussion. I They were spending more money on me than most players. Like, we got to get this kid off our team. He's costing us money because he's always in the hospital and getting broken. And, you know... I didn't think anyone was going to show up at the hospital because no one knew I was there. But somehow the word got out. I think one of the the hospital people found out that I was a football player and called him up. Well, he shows up at like 4 o'clock in the morning. And I'm still in the EIR part, just kind of coming out of all the stuff that happened. I I didn't even plan on being alive. And I wake up and long story short, he comes walking in the room. And I remember when I saw him, I just put my head down. I couldn't even look him in the eyes. Now think about this for a second. For any of you out there listening to this that really know what shame's like, where you can't look someone in the eyes because their eyes are a mirror and you don't want to see them looking at you like that at your worst. Well, We walked in and uh, whenever I, I, I've told the story a couple of times down the past couple years, and I hadn't told anyone the story for like 20 years, but you know, my version of the story is he came in and you know, gave me a little pep talk. Well, the story started out with a couple F-bombs because that's just the kind of guy he is. What the fuck are you doing, Cos? And I just remember I couldn't look at him. But I think he picked up really quickly that something was going on. Because I hadn't had a surgery. I mean, I'd already had the surgery. Something just wasn't right. And then he just started to just sit with me. And, you know, at that time, I wasn't really sure if I wasn't going to try to take my life again. And... You know, I just remember, I don't remember what he said or what we said. Um, I just remember him putting his arm around me and us was talking for a little bit. And I remember feeling embarrassed because he's got a whole team to run. It's 4 a.m. in the morning. He has a long day. Like, I felt like, why are you here for me? I felt like I did not deserve for him to be there for me. And I was embarrassed. But all I remember at the very end of it is him saying, Kaz, I don't know what's going on, but I love you, man. And that was it. And I started to tear up, I hugged him. I'm sure he cracked some sort of smart aleck joke, made fun of me. He's like, what's up? You close that, you know, apron you got on there, buddy, or whatever, you know. Like, hey, can you get him a pink one? Like, he said something to insult me, but that was his language of love. And he walked out the door, and I remember watching him walk out the door with 100% surety, I knew I wasn't going to ever take my life. Now, come to find out later on in life, I I did have suicidal thoughts again, but that moment changed me. For whatever reason, at my greatest time, he knew not to ask me, what the hell's wrong with you? What's going on? Like, why'd you do this? Just something about our connection and his understanding young men struggling. Because I used to call him like, you know, he was like that coach from the movie, The Bad News Bears. Because every one of the team, guys on our team were like me. We should have played at bigger schools, but we either had behavioral problems, injuries. We were all just the bad news bears. We some guys had gotten out of jail, and he gave him a scholarship. It's, he was he was cr- he was crazy to trust in people, but he knew he could. He had a relationship with people that he could get them to perform at a level that mentally and emotionally they weren't probably capable of doing on their own, and that's that was his that was his gift to us that he was. The leader of the misfits and so when he walked out of the room i knew i wasn't going to take my life and shortly after that i started counseling um you know i had to see a psychiatrist psychologist and i started down the pathway to figuring out what was wrong with my brain i went through psychological testing it was shortly after that i went home and a buddy of mine had went through chemo and we're you know we're 21 22 years old and i had the speech impediment problem we we're parting one night and my speech locked up on me but I locked, it locked up for like like 15 minutes. I started having a panic attack. I had to write a note to my friend, Andy Reed is his name. And I said, Andy, you know, I, I can't talk. And he's like, why? And And I wrote to him, it was like, I have problems with my brain and I've been hit in the head and it's been happening for a long time. I just confessed everything. So it was these series of events where I tried to take my life. It didn't work. And at first I'm like, I can't even take my life right. Like I'm a failure at that. I'm a young man that everybody says you're supposed to be a pro football player and i told myself i want to be a pro football player when in reality i didn't even really love football i didn't even like it that much i didn't want to play football i just wanted to be a normal person but i told everybody this lie that i was going to be a pro football player and i and i wanted people to like me and so this started a whole entire shift in my life where i had to figure out i had to sort myself out i had to figure out who am i where do i come from why did I not die? Is it because I, I can't even be successful at taking my life? Or is it because there's a plan for me? Did I get lucky? All I knew is that I had a second shot. And so, you know, I'd like to say that after that, everything got better and I was all fine. But that's not the truth. The truth of it is I still struggle. But I started to have a little bit of like my compass, My my compass started to work a little bit. Kind of like a Captain Jack Sparrow and those uh, the Pirates of Caribbean. <laughs> like it only worked in certain situations, and it started working enough where I went to counseling on my own. I started to realize that I needed to do something with my own personal life struggles, and I started to have some breakthroughs in counseling. And one thing led to another, and a gentleman I I want to give him props, Joe Welch. Um, this guy he took me underneath his wing because we were both from San Diego when I first got to the University of Utah you know this this black kid he was a senior um you know he just he was he's what i'd call an og and for those of you who don't know what that means like an original gangster is the original terminology but he's just the older guy that had been through a lot more but he was really into school he i was the kid that's like i'm a football player i don't need school and he's like dude you're an idiot he's like you better go to class and i was like wait what's this he's supposed to be saying yeah man yeah what's up like forget school C's get degrees no, 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 no. He wanted to be an educator. And I never seen that in someone before. You know, it came from a rough background. It came from a a situation where he should have been a thug, but he's like, no, I can pick a different life. He was a mentor to me at a very unique time. And he was working at a graduate school in San Diego. And he got me to believe in myself that I could go to graduate school. I'm like, I couldn't even study in undergraduate school. How the hell am I supposed to do graduate school? He, he just was really persuasive. And so He helped me. He was an admissions person. He helped me with the paperwork and he got me to that next point. And then I still struggled, but I still kept pushing forward. I had bad relationships, two of which made me want to take my life again. But I had those past experiences to to know that even though I was struggling, my struggle was not permanent. I could, there was, there was another side to the coin. I could flip the script. The story didn't have to end the way it started as me being a bastard child me being a person that was just supposed to be average or just barely get by because that that was really my mo do just enough not to fail but don't put yourself out there enough that you could expose yourself as having weaknesses and insecurities Well, i found out pretty quickly going to counseling that you can't heal from something that's not at the surface and you can't put bring something to the surface unless you talk about it and i i took on a an adventure you know and i i'm giving a lot of shot shot outs here but um uh a simone man that recently passed away a couple of years ago his name is pulu pumele he was a big legend in our hometown um and good friends with junior sal and he's a few years old than me he played football at the university of arizona i, I came back into town and through mutual friends. And I heard about this job and uh, working at a boy's group home in Devario, which is a, a Hispanic neighborhood in Vista. And uh wasn't a good neighborhood by any means. It was a rough neighborhood. But it's where all these at-risk you know, boys were at. And I heard it was this crazy job. But I heard Pulu was working there. And I'm like, man, if Pulu's working there, it must be pretty cool. And so I went there and, and talked to Pulu. And he said, hey, man, come work here. Because I told him I was going to graduate school. And he's like, man, if you want to you can go to graduate school and you can read all his books or you can come in here and and take some shrap metal with me and, and get some live rounds going in, in the trenches. And he just, he made me think about working with these at-risk teens instead of being scared of it, looking at it like I'm the perfect kind of person to help them. And man, that was a rough job. And then I started working in a psychiatric hospital on the teen unit. And that was a rough job. And I started to to look at these jobs as not, bad jobs that paid horrible. I started to look at these jobs as necessary for me to have a voice. Necessary for me to not just live through these things, but help other people live through it as well. And it be kind it kind of came my thing where I'm like, you know what? I could be with at risk teenagers in really difficult circumstances and above all else cuz sometimes you can't save them. But above all else I could sit with them, I could talk with them, and even if it's just for a few minutes when I was on my shift, they knew that I was going to be the same person every single time they saw me. For some reason, despite the craziness that was going on in my own personal life, I had this ability, and I had to practice, I had to get better at it, that I could leave my drama at my apartment and not bring it to these young boys, young girls, and I remember one crisis treatment center to this day is my favorite place I ever worked at. It's called Casa de Amparo on Oceanside, and I had a lot of great mentors there. Specifically, one uh, older uh, Latina woman named Essie. This woman every day would be singing at work, like biddy bitty bum bum, like like little Mexican tunes that I'd never heard of. But just being around her, you just couldn't help but feeling light. And this was not a place where anything was light and easy. This was a unit where there was at any time 15 to 20 teen girls that were taken from their home from abusive situations and put in this facility against their will. And a lot of times it wasn't anything that was their fault. It was some family issues and they had to go somewhere. Well, first of all, just imagine 15 to 20 teenage girls on one floor, all sharing rooms, for months at a time in any scenario. Now add into it that their families were a hot mess. A lot of them had suffered severe emotional and physical and sexual abuse. And they all came from different walks of life, different ethnic backgrounds. And then it's your job to make sure they don't hurt themselves or others and they follow the rules. Well, Essie Harold, who's uh, an older um, African-American man who passed away, Um, Tyra, these people, they were OGs. They were, they were people who'd been through the fire. I learned more from these three people than I ever learned in graduate school because they showed me what love and patience looked like. When you have a kid flipping out, trying to harm other kids and then turning a weapon on themselves and then having to restrain this kid for pure safety's sakes and then after it's said and done, You see these people, and I'm talking about Essie and Tyre, and these people, sitting with this young person, crying with them. And when I say crying with them, not watching them cry, but crying with them, holding them and loving them. And then the next day, you see that kid be a little bit more stable because they knew they weren't alone. A lot of people worked there, but not a lot of people cared to work there. These people—it is who they are. It's what they lived. It's what they breathe. They made no money at this. When I say no money, not a lot of money. And we used to have this joke there because a lot of the—not—not not at this facility per se, but a different facility. Because um, this facility, actually, I—you I, know—no company's perfect, but they are by far the only place that I had ever worked at that I wasn't thinking there was a lot of shady stuff going on in—in in the the financial departments and the hiding abuse from kids that get out of control, you know? Um, But these people, they just had something that was so special about the way that they connected with kids. And what they taught me is that my issues and the kids issues were similar. So I could be triggered by the kids when they had their issues because my not being able to control their behavior was like, it was like a reminder of me that i couldn't control my life or i could see them not being able to control their behavior as an opportunity for me to practice the necessity that i have to control the behavior in my own life otherwise i can't be of help to them so this refined me this was my boot camp my refiner's fire and i moved on to other places but i want to i just i felt the need to focus on that moment for a little bit because I'm building a story here, and hopefully what you're seeing is that every single one of these spots, I kept on finding the same thing. There was one or two people that understand how to be good people. I would come across so many people that would make me want to quit jobs, so many people that I felt were rude and disrespectful, but every now and then there was a diamond in the rough. At that particular case it came in the form of tyra essie harold and a few other people at each facility there was those shining stars and oh, the, getting back to the joke i was going to say we used to the joke we used to say is that uh they they'd give you a new position a new calling and ask you to do more work but you wouldn't get more money and uh we used to laugh and say well you're building a mansion in heaven and then Harold or Essie, or someone like, you know, with that smart out guy too, is like, dang, I just want a studio apartment on earth. Like, <laughs> or what about that studio apartment right now? And I remember all the therapists there, you know, everybody was kind of like, we're doing it cause we love the kids, but secretly everybody was dreaming about being able to be financially secure, <laughs> being able to pay their bills. I'm like how cool would it have been if we were paid by the value versus, you know, the education that we had. Or, you know, what if we could get paid for the effect we had on these kids' lives? Now, it was a fantasy, and it never came about, you know, to this day, even at those great facilities, no one's getting paid great money. Unfortunately, that's just not how this system works. But we all had really great experiences that were worth more than their weight in gold. And now fast-forwarding to the future, um, I, was, uh, I was married for a hot minute, Call it my starter wife. That used to be a TV show a long time ago. I said starter wife. I was like, oh, that's funny. I'll use that one. Um, you know, and at the time, I, I would complain and, you know, and and say how it was the, the hardest thing I'd ever gone through. And and at the time, it was the hardest thing I've ever gone through. Because even though we didn't have kids, if you've ever gone through a divorce, I, I wouldn't wish a divorce on anyone. There's a few people that I'm like, they might need their butt kicked, but I'd never wish a divorce on that person. <laughs> Cause you never know how long that that's going to take to heal. And, uh, but I look back on that and that, that was a very essential, um, experience for me because as a marriage licensed marriage and family therapist, having gone through a divorce, even though mine was not the worst one, it was enough of experience for me to be able to relate to people that are going through that, or at least scared that they're going to go through that. It's like how can I be it's almost like how can I be a marriage and family therapist and help people that could be facing divorce get through a divorce if I'd never gone through one and so I wouldn't suggest everybody have that experiment if you can avoid that try not to but in my case it was necessary because you know my the woman I chose um, to marry oddly enough had the same personality type as my biological mom and my grandmother and so uh, I learned in a reading a psychology book one time that's called unfinished business <laughs> And uh, sometimes we tend to date or get into intimate relationships with people that, um, for some reason, remind us of the same situation with one of our parents. And they bring to the surface all of our same insecurities. For some reason, we can't easily get their love or acceptance. And oddly enough, I found out later that you don't have to marry someone like your mom to heal from the hurt and pain from your mom. In fact, of anything that can create and bring back to the surface the hurt and pain from... uh, uh, from a parent, and so uh, you know, fortunate enough for me, later on I I met my now current wife, and you know she's she's exactly what I needed. She's a stable person. She's a rock. She's committed. She is the epitome and example of hard work and commitment. So she's helped me quite a bit. Um, I have a a credit score where I can actually get a credit card now, thanks to my wife. When I first met her. Uh, my credit score was, I used to tell people, it was divided by two from a regular credit score, and uh she she's just her example of just being a stable person was a great experience for me, and it allowed me to start this profession because I don't know I mean I, I know there's a lot of counselors and therapists and life coaches out there that have you know divorces and go through hard times, but I don't think anyone would say that, yeah, being a therapist, actively working with families it's a good time to go through a divorce and have a broken family yourself. No, because when I first started my private practice here in Utah 10 years ago, the first 10 years of my career, I was working with adolescents and families and treatment centers, but I didn't have like an actual family. I didn't have kids. So that was a little bit safer. I clocked in, clocked out, did my eight, 10 hour shift and I was done. Uh, Individual private practice is a lot more responsibility I, I think it's easier in a lot of ways because I'm not dealing with crisis situations to like the upteenth degree. But it's difficult in a lot of ways in the sense that I'm the one point of reference for all these people. You know, I'm I'm the boss of the company. I'm the secretary. I'm everything. And so I, I really have to... Um, it, it's just beneficial to me that I have a great wife and a healthy family so that I could be... I could give the best of myself to my clients. And it, it would just be... I couldn't imagine doing this if my relationship, my family's in a hot mess. So, um, yeah, I definitely probably give out a lot of bad suggestions and advice in the therapy term. I'd have a lot of transference uh, with my issues onto other people. So, uh, currently, um, you know, these past 10 years, I've been really thankful to be able to have my life sorted out enough so that my past can be a great library of information. It can be a, a great source. It's my own personal Google of Okay, I went through these hardships and these hard times and here's how I got through it. And a lot of times how I got through it is not the same way how I helped my clients get through it. But it, it leaves me with the confidence that if I could get through it, anyone could get through it. Because I didn't see myself as anything special. In fact, I saw myself as the opposite of special. I saw myself as damaged and you know that bastard child that nobody wanted and that I was just a service project. And luckily I had a crazy grandmother that was willing to take me on. So now I'm, I'm here in this podcast and, you know, you've learned a lot about me and Heidi or mostly, you know, you guys learn a lot about Heidi because she's very open and vulnerable, especially on social media. And I commend her for that. For me, um, you may not see me be as open on social media as vulnerable. And I can assure you it's not because I'm not willing to be vulnerable, but it's more because there's not a week that doesn't go by where I don't cry multiple times during that week. I have the fortunate experience to sit across from people that trust me and that share with me things that sometimes they've either never shared with someone else before or maybe they share it with me trusting that I could be of some sort of a help or assistance. Today, um, actually yesterday, um, I uh, met with someone that She shared with me um, some very horrible, traumatic things. And I cried. She cried. And there's something about the trust that she has with me as a starting point for her to be able to start looking at her problem as something that is put on her, but definitely doesn't belong to her and was definitely not her choice. And so then after I leave a counseling session like that, I feel tired, I feel drained, I feel overwhelmed of worry, but I feel so much gratitude and appreciation cuz she's going to be going through this regardless whether she knows me or not. How many people out there yourself maybe, your kids, they're going through hard times, but the worst thing is to go through those hard times alone without any guidance. And so I feel so thankful that I can help people get through these difficult struggles in a faster, more efficient way than I ever did. And even though I feel the burden and the weight and the stress of having to pull a rabbit out of my hat, as I talked about last time, and create solutions, I feel a great appreciation that I'm sharing their struggles with them. So thank you for allowing me to to talk today on the podcast. And like I said, if you want to leave light the fight, you know, this can be the episode you can leave it on. Or maybe it might be the episode where, you know, you get to know a little bit about the other side because I, I really do admire Heidi for with her vulnerability and her willingness to put herself out there. Like I said, especially on social media. But the reason why I don't put myself out there on social media is because I'm sharing all those things multiple times a week in face-to-face relationships. And I just, when I go home, I, I have to turn everything off. I, I can't bear to do it again. I mean, if I have to, like right now, like I'm not saying I didn't want to talk about the stuff, but I wasn't coming here like excited. Um, but I was coming here having no idea exactly how I was going to say it, what I was going to say But if nothing else, if you feel like you understand me a little bit better, if you relate to me and you're like, wow, that's interesting because I have similar life experiences, great. Well, I'm sorry, first of all. (laughs) I shouldn't have said great first. So I'm sorry, and that's great that you can relate to me. If you can't relate to me, but now you understand a little bit where my crazy ideas come from and having sitting across from so many people in such the depths of despair that when I give suggestions like, Don't try to stop your kid from vaping. Focus on the relationship. It's just, I've seen what happens when people focus on the problem, and I see what happens when people focus on the relationship. The problem is minimized, it's softened. Yeah, it doesn't always go away, but at least it's shared and it's not on one person only. I don't think we're meant to go through this life together. I mean, alone. I've said that backwards. Um, and even when we're not alone, if we don't believe that we have support, just feeling alone could be uh, problematic in and of itself. And, you know, I, I tell you, you know, I, me and Heidi, we read, you know, all the messages. Um, you know, we try to respond to all of them. So if you've left us a message and we haven't responded, well, then that's our bad. Um, but we, we read them and thank you. I know Heidi's always saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. But I want to thank you because after a long day of helping people and feeling great reward and gratitude, having people that I don't even know say that they connect, they relate, this is helping them. I know me and Heidi, we look at each other. It's like, so our horrible life experiences aren't just going to die with us. They're going to benefit other people. And so when I say thank you, I mean, hallelujah, thank you, because those wins and those things that you share with us, it gets us through very difficult days because Heidi's a part of a club that nobody wants to be a part of. I'm like the the team manager of the team nobody wants to be a part of. But it comes to find out, especially by how many people are listening to this podcast, apparently there's a more part of this team, there's more people that were drafted in this team that actually didn't even want to play the sport. Didn't even want to be on this team, but Hey, if we're all going to be in this team, it's good that we're not alone. We're on it together. So thank you very much for joining light. The fight, AKA light, the shine a light on all of David's uh, past experiences. And um, yeah, just, just thank you for being a part of what we're doing and uh, I look forward to the future and getting to see some of you at, at a workshops in the future. This one happened in August. This is just going to be our first one, folks. You know, we're, we're, gonna, we're, we're just crazy enough to try to do it more after that, and, and we're willing to fly to other states to do it. Whatever it takes to uh, connect with you guys and, and to give you things that are important and meaningful to you, uh, we're going to do that. So thank you again, and without further ado, I'm out.